Part 6 of The Edge of the Knife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Giulio Marchini. The Edge of the Knife by H. Bean Piper. Part 6. Vile came up to the apartment with him. He mixed a couple of drinks, and they went into the living room with them. Just in case you don't know what you've gotten yourself into, Vile said, this Hauserman isn't any ordinary couch pilot. He's the state psychiatrist. If he gets the idea you aren't sane, he can commit you to a hospital, and I'll bet that's exactly what Whitburn had in mind when he suggested him. And I don't trust this man, Dacker. I thought he was on our side at the start, but that was before your friends got into the act. He frowned into his drink. And I don't like the way that Intelligence Major was acting toward the last. If he thinks you know something you are not supposed to, a mental hospital might be his way of a good place to put you away. You don't think this man Hauserman would allow himself to be influenced? No. You just don't think I'm sane, do you? I know what Hauserman will think. He'll think this future history business is a classical case of systematized schizoid delusion. I wish I'd never gotten into this case. I wish I'd never even heard of you. And another thing, in case you get past Hauserman all right, you can forget about that damage suit bluff of mine. You would not stand a chance with it in court. In spite of what happened to Halid? After tomorrow, I won't stay in the same room with anybody who even mentions that name to me. Well, win or lose, it'll be over tomorrow, and then I can leave here. Did you tell me you were going to Reno? Chalmers asked. Don't do it. You remember Whitburn mentioning how I spoke about an explosion there? It happened just a couple of days after the murder of Halid. There was, will be, a trainload of high explosives in the railroad yard. It'll be the biggest non-nuclear explosion since the Mont Blanc blew up in Halifax Harbor in World War I. Vile threw his drink into the fire. He must have avoided throwing the glass in with it by a last-second exercise of self-control. Well, he said after a brief struggle to master himself, one thing about the legal profession, you do hear the damnedest things. Good night, Professor, and try, please try, for the sake of your poor harried lawyer, to keep your mouth shut about things like that, at least till after you get through with Hauserman. And when you're talking to him, don't, don't, for heaven's sake, don't volunteer anything. The room was a pleasant, warmly colored place. There was a desk, much like the ones in the classrooms, and six or seven wicker armchairs. A lot of apparatus had been pushed back along the walls. The dust covers were gay tone. There was a couch with more apparatus similarly covered beside it. Hauserman was seated at the desk when Chalmers entered. He rose, and they shook hands. A man of about his own age, smooth-faced, partially bald. Chalmers tried to get something of the man's nature from his face, but could read nothing. A face well-trained to keep its owner's secret. Something to smoke, Professor? He began offering his cigarette case. My pipe, if you don't mind. He got it out and filled it. Any of those chairs, Hauserman said, gesturing toward them. They were all arranged to face the desk. He sat down, lighting his pipe. Hauserman nodded approvingly. He was behaving calmly and didn't need being put at ease. They talked at random, 
at least Hauserman tried to make it seem so, for some time about his work, his book about the French Revolution, current events. He picked his way carefully through the conversation, alert for traps which the psychiatrist might be laying for him. Finally, Hauserman said, Would you mind telling me just why you felt it advisable to request a psychiatric examination, Professor? I didn't request it, but when the suggestion was made by one of my friends, in reply to some aspersions of my sanity, I agreed to it. Good distinction. And why was your sanity questioned? I won't deny that I heard of this affair here before Mr. Dacker called me last evening, but I'd like to hear your version of it. He went into that from the original incident in modern history forward, choosing every word carefully, trying to concentrate on making a good impression upon Hauserman, and at the same time finding that more memories of the future were beginning to seep past the barrier of his consciousness. He tried to damn them back. When he could not, he spoke with greater and greater care lest they leak into his speech. I can't recall the exact manner in which I blundered into it. The fact that I did make such a blunder was because I was talking extemporaneously and had wandered ahead of my text. I was trying to show the results of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire after the First World War and the partition of the Middle East into a loose collection of Arab states and the passing of British and other European spheres of influence following the second. You know, when you consider it, the Islamic Caliphate was inevitable. The surprising thing is that it was created by a man like Khalid. He was talking to gain time, and he suspected that Hauserman knew it. The memories were coming into his mind more and more strongly. It was impossible to suppress them. The period of anarchy following Khalid's death would be much briefer and much more violent than he had previously thought. Talal ibn Khalid would be flying from England even now. Perhaps he had already left the plain to take refuge among the black tents of his father's Bedouins. The revolt of Damascus would break out before the end of the month. Before the end of the year, the whole of Syria and Lebanon would be in bloody chaos, and the Turkish army would be on the march. Yes, and you allowed yourself to be carried a little beyond the present moment into the future without realizing, is that it? Something like that, he replied, wide awake to the trap Hauserman had set, and fearful that it might be a blind to disguise the real trap. History follows certain patterns. I'm not a toying being, by any manner of means, but any historian can see that certain forces generally tend to produce similar effects. For instance, space travel is not a fact. Our government has at present a military base on Luna. Within our lifetimes, certainly within the lifetimes of my students, there will be explorations and attempts at colonization on Mars and Venus. You believe that, Doctor? Oh, unreservedly. I'm not supposed to talk about it, but I did some work on the Philadelphia Project myself. I'd say that every major problem of interplanetary flight had been solved before the first robot rocket was landed on Luna. Yes, and when Mars and Venus are colonized, there will be the same historic situations, at least in general shape, as arose when the European powers were colonizing the New World, or, for that matter, when the Greek city-states were throwing out colonies across the Aegean. That's the sort of thing we call projecting the past into the future through the present. Hauserman nodded. But how about the details? 
things like the assassination of a specific personage, how can you extrapolate to a thing like that? Well, more memories were coming to the surface. He tried to crowd them back. I do my projecting in what you might call a fictionalized form, tried to fill in the details from imagination. In the case of Khalid, I was trying to imagine what would happen if his influence were suddenly removed from Near Eastern and Middle Eastern affairs. I suppose I constructed an imaginary scene of his assassination. He went on at length. Mohammed and Reed were common enough names. The Middle East was full of old U.S. weapons. Stoning was the traditional method of execution. It diffused responsibility so that no individual could be singled out for blood feud vengeance. You have no idea how disturbed I was when the whole thing happened exactly as I had described it, he continued. And worst of all, to me, was this intelligence officer showing up. I thought I was really in for it. Then you never really believed that you had real knowledge of the future? I'm beginning to, since I've been talking to those psionics and parapsychology people, he laughed. It sounded, he hoped, like a natural and unaffected laugh. They seem to be convinced that I have. There would be an Eastern-inspired uprising in Azerbaijan by the middle of the next year, before autumn. The Indian communists would make their fatal attempt to seize East Pakistan. The Thirty Days' War would be the immediate result. By that time, the lunar base would be completed and ready. The enemy missiles would be aimed primarily at the rocket ports from which it was supplied. Delivered without warning, it should have succeeded, except that every rocket port had its secret duplicate and triplicate. That was Operation Triple Chaos. No wonder Major Cutler had been so startled at the words last evening. The enemy would be utterly overwhelmed under the rain of missiles from across space, but until the moon rockets began to fall, the United States would suffer grievously. Honestly, though, I feel sorry for my friend Fitch, he added. He's going to be frightfully let down when some more of my alleged prophecies misfire on him, but I really haven't been deliberately deceiving him. And Blandley College was at the center of one of the areas which would receive the worst of the thermal nuclear hell to come, and it would be a little under a year. And that's all there is to it, Hauserman exclaimed, annoyance in his voice. I'm amazed that this man Whitburn allowed a thing like this to assume the proportions it did. I must say that I seem to have gotten the story about this business in a very garbled form indeed, he laughed shortly. I came here convinced that you were mentally unbalanced. I hope you won't take that the wrong way, Professor, he hastened to add. In my profession, anything can be expected. A good psychiatrist can never afford to forget how sharp and fine is the knife edge. The knife edge. The words startled him. He had been thinking at the moment of the knife edge, slicing moment after moment relentlessly away from the future into the past. At each slice, coming closer and closer to the moment when the missiles of the eastern axis would fall. I didn't know they still resorted to surgery in mental cases, he added, trying to cover his rape. Oh no, all that sort of thing is as irrevocably discarded as the whips and shackles of Bedlam. I meant another kind of knife edge, the thin, almost invisible line which separates sanity from non-sanity, from madness, to use a deplorable lay expression. Hauserman lit another cigarette. Most minds are a lot closer to it than their owners suspect, too. 
In fact, Professor, I was so convinced that yours had passed over it that I brought with me a commitment form made out all but my signature for you. He took it from his pocket and laid it on the desk. The modern equivalent of the lettre de cachet, I suppose the author of a book on the French Revolution would call it, I was all ready to certify you as mentally unsound and commit you to the Northern State Mental Hospital. Chalmers sat erect in his chair. He knew where that was, on the other side of the mountains, in the one part of the state completely untouched by the H-bombs of the Thirty Days' War. Why, the town outside which the hospital stood had been a military headquarters during the period immediately after the bombings, and the center from which all the rescue work in the state had been directed. And you thought you could commit me to Northern State, he demanded, laughing scornfully, and this time he didn't try to make the laugh sound natural and unaffected. You confine me anywhere? Confine a poor old history professor's body, yes, but that isn't me. I'm universal. I exist in all space-time. When this old body I'm wearing now was writing that book on the French Revolution, I was in Paris, watching it happen, from the fall of the Bastille to the Nun Thermidor. I was in Basra, and saw that crazed tool of the axis shoot down Halid ibn Hussein, and the professor talked about it a month before it happened. I have seen empires rise and stretch from star to star across the galaxy, and crumble and fall. I have seen... Dr. Hauserman had gotten his pen out of his pocket and was signing the commitment form with one hand. With the other, he pressed a button on the desk. A door at the rear opened, and a large young man in a white jacket entered. You'll have to go away for a while, Professor, Hauserman was telling him, much later, after he had allowed himself to become calm again. For how long? I don't know. Maybe a year or so. You mean to Northern State Mental? Well, yes, Professor. You've had a bad crack-up. I don't suppose you realize how bad. You've been working too hard, harder than your nervous system could stand. It's been too much for you. You mean I'm nuts? Please, Professor, I deplore that sort of terminology. You've had a severe psychological breakdown. Will I be able to have books and papers and work a little? I couldn't bear the prospect of complete idleness. That would be all right if you didn't work too hard. And could I say goodbye to some of my friends? Hauserman nodded and asked. Who? Well, Professor Potgeiter. He's outside now. He was inquiring about you. And Stanley Vile, my attorney, not business, just to say goodbye. Oh, I'm sorry, Professor, he's not in town now. He left almost immediately after... after... after he found out I was crazy for sure. Where did he go? To Reno. He took the plane at five o'clock. Vile wouldn't have believed anyhow. No use trying to blame himself for that. But he was as sure that he would never see Stanley Vile alive again as he was that the next morning the sun would rise. He nodded impassively. Sorry he couldn't stay. Can I see Max Potgeiter alone? Yes, of course, Professor. Old Potgeiter came in, his face anguished. Ed, it isn't true, he stammered. I won't believe that it's true. What, Max? That you're crazy. Nobody can make me believe that. He put his hand on the old man's shoulder. Confidentially, Max? Neither do I. But don't tell anybody I'm not. It's a secret. Potgeiter looked troubled. 
For a moment, he seemed to be wondering if he mightn't be wrong and Hauserman and Whitburn and the others right. Max, do you believe in me? he asked. Do you believe that I knew about Halid's assassination a month before it happened? It's horribly hard thing to believe, Potgeiter admitted. But damn it, Ed, you did. I know medieval history is full of stories about prophecies being fulfilled. I always thought those stories were just legends that grew up after the event. And, of course, he's about a century late for me, but there was Nostradamus. Maybe those old prophecies weren't just ex post facto legends after all. Yes, after Halid, I'll believe that. All right. I'm saying now that in a few days there will be a bad explosion at Reno, Nevada. Watch the papers and the telecast for it. If it happens, that ought to prove it. And you remember what I told you about the Turks annexing Syria and Lebanon? The old man nodded. When that happens, get away from Blandley. Come up to the town where Northern State Mental Hospital is. And get yourself a place to live. And stay there. And try to bring Marjorie Fenner along with you. Will you do that, Max? If you say so. His eyes widened. Something bad's going to happen here? Yes, Max. Something very bad. You promise me you will? Of course, Ed. You know, you're the only friend I have around here. You and Marjorie, I'll come and bring her along. Here's the key to my apartment. He got it from his pocket and gave it to Potguider, with instructions. Everything in the filing cabinet on the left of my desk. And don't let anybody else see any of it. Keep it safe for me. The large young man in the white coat entered. The End End of The Edge of the Knife by H. B. Piper Recording by Giulio Marchini in Ribeirão Preto, São Paulo, Brazil